Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to the Lost in Science Summer Series. Over the next few weeks, we're taking a bit of a break from our normal show, and instead we're playing some classic stories from The Laboratory. Now, this is a monthly event in Melbourne where scientists tell stories about their favourite science heroes, or, as you'll hear today, science villains. But first up this week, we have theoretical cosmologist Katie Mack telling the story of her first encounter with the famous physicist Stephen Hawking and the amazing story of her less-known true science hero, her grandfather, Captain Sam Houston. And following her will be me, with my very own appearance from the Laboratory's annual Halloween edition of Science Villains. And I'm talking about Edward Teller, who is the father of the hydrogen bomb. On with the show. Dr. Katie Mack is a researcher in theoretical cosmology. She seeks to answer the big questions about the nature of the universe, fundamental physics and whether Twitter is actually a time-sucking black hole. Katie. So, it's November 2006. I've been a visiting graduate student at Cambridge University for about a month, and I'm about to give a cosmology group lunch seminar in the Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics. I have a lot of reasons to be nervous. It's one of the first seminars I've ever given, I'm a graduate student who's only just arrived. The lecturers for the courses I'm sitting in on are sitting in the audience looking up at me expectantly. Um, I'm still holding out hope that it'll be okay, though, because among those in the audience is not Stephen Hawking, who usually attends these seminars. Um, And I'm just getting my laptop set up on the title slide, thinking I'm home free when I hear beep, beep, beep. So the talk is about primordial black holes. Stephen Hawking invented primordial black holes. They were his idea. At this point, I am beyond terrified, but there's no turning back. I'm introduced. I read out my title. And a loud mechanical voice comes from the audience. Thank you. Everybody laughs. I stand there shocked, confused, and I think, well... Okay, that's funny. I guess he's referring to my title, acknowledging that I'm talking about something he came up with. Um, I, shoot him a, I shoot a questioning look to the carer who's sitting there feeding him soup while everybody's eating their pizza, and she just looks back at me blankly. So I pause, I continue on, and before long I'm going through some background material, and I hear, yes. And I look at Stephen Hawking and the carer again, and... I have no idea, no idea what's going on. Um, they don't say anything. Um, so I carry on. I'm confused, more than a little embarrassed. Um, and I can't exactly ask Hawking to elaborate because he speaks through a computer and he can only manage to say about a word a minute at this point. Um, when I was a little kid, he had a little clicker that he held in his hand that he used to, to select words off a screen. And that was how I, you know, that's how he communicated because he has this degenerative disease and he's slowly losing the ability to move his body. And so at this point, um, when I'm giving this talk, he has 
he's lost the use of everything except basically his face. So instead of using a clicker, he has a little sensor clipped to his glasses that looks at his cheek, and when he sort of twitches his cheek, it selects words as the sort of scroll bar is going down the screen. Um, and so he's basically speaking just by sort of twitching his, his face, and, and it takes a long time. Um, so you can't just say, oh, excuse me, can you repeat that or tell me what you're saying? Um, so I just have to go on. Um, so I go on with the talk. I explain my work. I answer questions from the other researchers. Um, every now and then I hear Hawking say yes or no or maybe or I don't know or I don't think so. Um, and every time it happens, I, I pause and I look imploringly at the, uh, the carer who's just sitting there. Um, and eventually I just move on. You know, I allow a respectful silence and, and just go. Um, and so the talk ends and the audience applauds politely and people file out and Hawking is wheeled away. Um, and I asked the organizer, you know, what, what was happening? What went on with that? Um, and so nonchalantly he explains it. He says, well, Hawking's cheek sensor malfunctions when he's eating and this is a lunch seminar <laughs> and so there's it so there's this he has this sort of list of commonly used phrases like yes no maybe i don't know i don't think so um and it just randomly selects them while he's eating and so and i had no idea and it had nothing to do with me um and apparently this happens all the time but nobody told me and to this day, you know, I don't know if it was just an unfortunate oversight or some kind of academic hazing. Um, but, you know, I mean, it, in any case, it worked. You know, every other talk I've given has been easy compared to that. <laughs> and, and, you know, my nervousness around that seminar wasn't just that Hawking was a well-known physicist. It wasn't just that he invented primordial black holes. He was really a hero of mine. So um, I grew up in Los Angeles, and some of my earliest memories were reading about science and, and reading about the brief history of time and going to seminars at, at Caltech where Hawking would occasionally visit because I lived about an hour away from there. Um, my mom used to take me to these public lectures, some of them by Stephen Hawking or other people, and they'd talk about space-time and, and warped gravitational fields, and, and I, just, I just loved that sort of thing. I, I, um, I loved the idea of thinking about black holes and the Big Bang and extra dimensions. Um, and so I, I would go to these talks, and the first time I ever spoke to Stephen Hawking, actually, I was about 14 years old, and I was at one of these talks um, that my mother took me to. My mom took me and a friend of mine uh, to hear Stephen Hawking talk about higher dimensional universes or something. And... Um, and we, we went to the talk, and as we were leaving, we happened to be walking right where Stephen Hawking was kind of wheeling along. And um, so I was actually too nervous to talk to him. Um, so my friend Garov uh, went up to him and said, hey, my friend wants to say hi to you or something. Um, and so I, I sort of went up, and I was like, hi, um, you know, you're my hero. I'm really interested in theoretical physics. You know, I enjoyed your talk. And, uh, and he said, thank you very much. Um, and that was, that was very nice. Now I know that it was probably really easy to say that because he had this, this sort of clicker thing. Um, but anyway, so by that time I already knew, I was you know, 14 years old, I already knew I wanted to be a cosmologist because that was what Stephen Hawking was and I wanted to do what he did. And I also knew I wanted to go to Caltech. So for those of you who aren't familiar, Caltech is the California Institute of Technology. It's a small, very selective uh, university focused on math, science, and engineering. It's kind of like MIT, but it's better. Um, and, uh, and, and I happened to knew a lot about Caltech because my grandfather um, 
uh, spent time there during World War II. He was a meteorologist in the Navy, and he was sent to Caltech to study um, before heading off to sea. And later on, he had a successful career designing rockets to go up and measure the atmospheric something or other. Um, and he used to tell tor- stories about these Caltech geniuses, and he would tell stories about how the Navy guys would challenge them to games of poker, thinking that you know these are just geeks, they don't know what they're doing, and, and the Navy guys would always you know get completely um, completely torn apart at the poker table because the, Cal- the Caltech guys would count cards. Um, <laughs> And uh, and my grandfather would tell me about these amazing pranks that Caltech students would do, all these really elaborate technical things. And, and Caltech advertised itself as the world's best playground for math and science. And I just thought, this is, this is great. This is exactly where I want to be. And so I eventually re- enrolled in Caltech. And it was a really intense place, but I, I really loved it. And I'd, I would run into Hawking sometimes on campus because he would spend a month or two there every spring and give talks and hang out with Kip Thorne and um, all the other people who worked in his area um and i even sat next to near him at a barbecue once and that was really exciting and um you know and i would i would go home from the holidays and i would tell my grandfather you know i'd that i that what i was doing at caltech and i'd tell him about my science and he was kind of the only one in my family who could really get the science and so it was always really fun to talk to him and and um he was always the really you know a really reserved and and humble man but i i i I thought he was i thought he was proud of me I, i really looked up to him and I did notice that um, that every time I saw him for a holiday or something, he would be wearing the Caltech tie that I gave him. Um, so after Caltech, I went on to, P- to Princeton for my PhD. I ended up spending a year at Cambridge, which is where that seminar happened. Um, I sat in on some courses. I did some research there. And around the time of that seminar, I, had, um, I was given an office right underneath Stephen Hawking's office. And so this is really exciting, you know, because I, um, I, Calte- I was at Cambridge and Hawking was at Cambridge, and he was right there, you know. Um, and uh, and I was friends with his graduate assistant, so I would occasionally go to, like, dinners and things that he was at. Um, one time I went to a, a Christmas dinner where, where he was, and I got to introduce myself to him and tell him a little bit about my research and get a picture taken, and that was that was really exciting. Um, so, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd kind of gotten to this place where I was, I was a cosmologist, you know. I was doing what I wanted to do. Um, and uh, later on, I went back to Cambridge as a postdoc um, to do more cosmology, and, and I would still sort of run into Hawking once in a while. And so, you know, so I was, I was there, you know, doing one of my top career dreams, and um, one of the top two anyway. So the other, the other one, um, well, during my last year, I applied to be an astronaut with NASA. I mean, really, who doesn't want to be an astronaut, right? I mean, okay, maybe you've seen the movie Gravity. I haven't yet. Don't tell me. Um, but it, but it, you know, it, it, I heard that there were applications going. It sounded like, oh, this will be awesome. I'll just, I'll just apply and see what happens. And uh, and so I actually I made the first cut, um, which was pretty exciting. Um, I and um, I was still at Cambridge, and I was waiting to hear if I was going to inter- get an interview um, when I heard that uh, Neil Armstrong had died, and this actually really affected me. Um, and it's not because Neil Armstrong was a particular hero of mine, especially. I, d- I didn't know a whole lot about him. I knew that my grandfather knew him. Um, and my grandfather knew him because my grandfather had saved his life once. So I found out when I was a teenager that my grandfather had worked on the Apollo 11 mission as a meteorologist. Um, and his job in the, on this mission was to check the weather at the landing site. Okay, um, And he had access to some... Uh, like weather uh, 
equipment, satellites or whatever. And so he was making sure that they wouldn't fall into like a thunderstorm or something. Um, and before this, he had been working on some classified spy satellite as part of the Cold War. And so when it was time to check the landing site, he thought, oh, maybe I'll just go and check with those guys at the spy satellite and make sure that, you know, there's nothing going on. And so he goes over to, to this, his old workplace where they have this um, classified spy satellite. And um, one of his old colleagues comes by and, like, drags him into his office and says, you have, there's, there's a huge storm, right, where the astronauts are going to land. And this guy knew about the mission, but he couldn't, say, he couldn't tell anybody because it was all classified. And he could tell my granddad because my granddad was, had still a clearance for it, but he couldn't tell anybody else. And so my granddad then had to go and convince NASA um, to move the the landing site with only like 72 hours left before the landing and he couldn't tell anybody why he couldn't he couldn't tell nasa what where he'd gotten the information um they had they, he couldn't show them the data they had to just trust him and luckily he was a respected navy man he was a well-known scientist in the navy and so so they they said okay look we're gonna we're gonna move the landing site but just so you know, we're going to send a plane to the original site. And if there's not a storm there, you're in big trouble. Um, so, so they did reroute the capsule. Um, and sure enough, uh, they, when they sent the plane, there was a massive screaming eagle thunderstorm at the original site. And it would have ripped the parachutes right off the capsule and killed everyone inside. So that's how close the Apollo 11 mission came to being completely wiped out. Um, and that's how... My granddad saved it. The, the Apollo 11 capsule landed without incident um, because my grandfather was a conscientious scientist, basically. Um, so, you know, it, it might be, you might think it's funny you never heard this story. It actually, he never became well known for it. Um, he was given a Navy Commendation Medal, but it wasn't until the 1990s when they finally declassified this secret satellite. So, for all that time, um, he didn't tell anybody. I didn't know about it. Um, so, so he's, he, there, were, there are a couple of books that you can find now that mention him. Um, there was supposed to be a movie at some point that where he was going to have some character was going to play him um, in, in, in this movie about Apollo 11, but I don't think that ever happened. Um, he re- retired from the Navy as a captain um, and went on to be a volunteer at the Monterey Bay Aquarium and talk to visitors and kids about the ocean and life in the oceans and stuff like that because he had spent all those years as a Navy man so he you know, had a connection to the sea. He never wrote a book. Um, he had I have some of his old lab notes lab notebooks. They, they mention Apollo 11 but only in passing I guess because it was all the really cool stuff was classified. Um, so you know he didn't, he didn't become um, a public figure before he died, I did manage to let him know that I was applying to be an astronaut, and he was uh, he was very happy about that. And I I really wanted him to be proud of me, and I think I think that he was. It, although I didn't make uh, the final cut, but he died before he found that out. Um, but uh, I you know I'll probably apply again. Um, but then when when Neil Armstrong died a little later, that it made me realize something about um, how we think of science heroes. You know. I think it's really important to have role models of famous people who are well-known in the world and who can uh, do great things and be recognized for it and, and be inspirations to millions of people. Um, but a lot of science is done really quietly, you know, in the background by uh, passionate, hardworking people who, who don't get any fame or fortune. Um, but, 
just use science to make a real difference in the world. And, you know, um, Stephen Hawking was always an inspiration to me as a scientist, and Neil, Neil Armstrong was a reminder of how far humanity can go. But to me and to the Apollo 11 astronauts, uh, my granddad was a true science hero. Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. The next speaker we have is Dr. Chris um, Lassick. He is also on Twitter under the Twitter tag of Astro Cave. So if anyone is um, into following our speakers, um, he's at Astro Cave. Um, Dr. Chris Lassig is a theoretical particle phys- physicist, I'll slow down, turned science writer and performer. So you can hear him on Lost in Science at 8.30 in the morning or evening? Morning? 8.30 in the morning, over there. <laughs> Sorry. Um, on a Thursday um, on 3CR Community Radio. So please welcome Dr. Chris Lassig. August the 6th, 1945. 100,000 people die when the atomic bomb is dropped on the city of Hiroshima. Albert Einstein, who, um, who six years previously had recommended the bomb be built to stop the threat of Nazi Germany and hoped that it would never be used, he deplored its use on Japan and dedicated his life to peace. In England, the captured German physicist who never actually tried to build the bomb were still nonetheless put on suicide watch due to the despair they felt over the, what their science had wrought. In America, Robert Oppenheimer, the director of the Manhattan Project, resigned his post and shortly after started pushing for a ban on nuclear weapons. But there was one man, there was one man who looked at the explosion, who saw the unprecedented devastation and thought, I think we can build something bigger. <laughs> Edward Teller is known as the father of the hydrogen bomb. Uh, He was the kind of man who puts his obsessions ahead of things like human decency and even scientific integrity. (laughs) You know, sometimes we excuse this when it's for a noble cause, but Teller's cause seemed to mostly just be blowing things up with nuclear weapons. He certainly fit the image of a villain. Uh, He was born in Hungary, so he spoke with an... No, that's not... I will give examples of good Hungarians later on. But he, um, when you heard him speak, he sounded like Bela Lugosi, like the same accent. Or if you don't know what that is, that's like the Count of Sesame Street. Uh, his colleagues at the Manhattan Project described him as having intense, riveting eyes, and he had these, this bushy forest of eyebrows. And he has also suggested that he was the, the real-life inspiration for Dr. Strangelove from the, from the movie of the same name. Yeah, that is, that is, of course, absolute rubbish because, um, obviously, Strangelove was German, not Hungarian. Uh, also, uh, in the movie, he has this uncontrollable arm, whereas Teller, he was his right foot that was prosthetic. <laughs> uh, yeah, so complete rubbish. Well, the real reason, though, is that 
Strange Love in the movie is a Nazi, whereas Teller definitely hated Nazis. Okay, so he was, um, he was born in Budapest in 1908. His father was a successful lawyer. But when the communists came to power in 1919, yeah, they made it rather hard for the family. Fortunately, that didn't last long because the fascists soon took over. Um, they got even worse because they hated Jews and Teller being Jewish was forbidden to go to university. So in order to study science, he migrated to Germany, which worked out about as well as you can expect. Uh, he did study under Heisenberg while he was there, but eventually he uh, managed to escape in 1933 uh, to Copenhagen via London, where he worked with Bohr for a bit, and then he eventually moved to America. And in 1939, he was the one who drove his fellow Hungarian physicist, Leo Szilard, to meet Albert Einstein, where, to get him to sign the famous letter to President Roosevelt that recommended the construction of the bomb. Uh, shortly after that, uh, Teller joined the Manhattan Project to actually build an atomic bomb. But he got kind of sidetracked uh, by the notion that the fission bomb they were building could be used to set off a more powerful fusion explosion. Okay, so nuclear fission, for those who don't know, is when you have a large atom like uranium or plutonium and it splits apart, releasing a lot of energy and all these neutrons. And the neutrons go off and strike other nuclei, causing them to split and so on in a chain reaction. Now, to make this actually work, though, you need to have a lot of these atoms all very close together. Uh, now, the trouble with being in a bomb is it tends to blow itself apart. So you can only keep the chain reaction going for just so long. Uh, and so the limit to the power you can get out of a fission bomb. But fusion, on the other hand, which is where you join isotopes of hydrogen together to make helium, which is the reaction that powers the sun, all that requires is really high temperature and pressure, which is exactly what you get from an explosion. And the, the bomb that you make out of this would be called a thermonuclear weapon, and in theory, you can make it as big as you want it to be. So yeah, uh, this wasn't Teller's original idea. It was actually mentioned to him in passing by Enrico Fermi, but he loved it. Uh, he started drawing up plans for bigger and bigger bombs. But there were a few practical issues with it, not least of which that you still needed this fission bomb to set it off. So that's where Oppenheimer, who was in charge, decided to direct the efforts. Uh, but Teller wouldn't let it go. And this is one of the things you find, the themes you find in his history, is that when he latches onto an idea, he just won't give it up, no matter how unworkable everyone else says it is. Plus, he was quite bitter at being passed up for the head of the theoretical physics division. So, yeah, he caused a lot of trouble. Uh, Oppenheimer eventually had to give him his own little unit to stop him basically interfering in everyone else's work. <laughs> Nevertheless, so he was present at the... Uh, the first test of a nuclear weapon in New Mexico. Uh, he was one of the few who watched the explosion against regulations uh, using welder's goggles. And he later said that, I have looked into the eye of the beast and I was impressed. <laughs> okay, so they used the bombs, the war ended, and as I said, Oppenheimer started to shut things down. And he and his colleagues eventually declared that building a hydrogen bomb was both unnecessary and immoral. However, everything changed in 1949, when the Soviet Union exploded their first atomic weapon. It's believed to be partly with help from a Soviet spy who had actually been working on Teller's team. So... After that happened, essentially, building a hydrogen bomb seemed like a matter of urgency. And President Truman ordered an accelerated program with Teller in charge. Uh, so he got extra resources the, that he needed to solve the technical challenges, but he still he really struggled as a, as a leader. 
In fact, he believed that the, the staff at Los Alamos were still loyal to Oppenheimer and they weren't fully committed to his uh, new program for a hydrogen bomb. So he, got, he persuaded the powers that be to actually even set up a completely new rival facility, which is now the, Los Al- sorry, the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Nevertheless, he was still... Um, by the time they did the first test in the South Pacific, he felt that he wasn't going to be welcome at the testing site. Uh, yes, he still didn't get along with people. And he watched the explosion alone from a darkened basement in the University of California in Berkeley, uh, watching a tiny spot of light on a seismograph as it recorded the vibrations coming through the earth. But look, where he really uh, kind of got, made himself an outcast from the scientific community was in 1954 when he testified against Oppenheimer at a security hearing. Because this was the height of the, the McCarthy era, and Oppenheimer had kind of come under a bit of suspicion, because, partly because he had links to communists in the 1930s, but also because he wasn't seen to be fully committed to Teller's hydrogen bomb program. So yeah, Teller was called in to testify, and he essentially said that he didn't really understand Oppenheimer, and he preferred that the country's interests were in hands that he could trust. And as a result, Oppenheimer's security clearance was revoked. And this made Teller an outcast from the scientific community, which was a huge blow for him because he left his home country behind long ago and basically everyone he knew was in science. So he suddenly found himself a pariah. Fortunately for him, though, he did make new friends in politics uh, and they were more receptive to his ideas, even if it seemed like it was only just the one idea. Um, I'll give you some examples. Uh, In 1957, when the Soviets launched the first artificial satellite, Sputnik, Uh, Teller was put in charge of a committee to work out how the US should respond. His recommendation? Explode an atomic weapon on the moon. In 1958, uh, he had an idea to use a multi-megaton bomb to dig a mile-long harbour in Point Hope, Alaska. Yeah, apparently some some environmentalists said it could harm the local wildlife. Uh, What else? Um, Extracting oil from tar sands in Canada? Bam! (laughs) Nuclear weapon. Uh, Weather control. Turns out you can explode a hydrogen bomb in the ocean? Bam! Artificial clouds. Uh, Killer asteroids? Uh, Bam! (laughs) Teller has an answer for you. In the 1980s, he became an advisor to Ronald Reagan. He was the main driving force behind the Strategic Defence Initiative, or the Star Wars program. And this is where, this was a plan to mount X-ray lasers on satellites and use them to knock out incoming missiles. Uh, Now, that actually sounds like it's acting against nuclear weapons, but um, what do you think was going to be used to power these X-ray lasers? (laughs) Look, that one turned out to be another one of his unworkable ideas, as was the kind of the dream underlying it, which was to have a winnable nuclear war. You see, me, I, I grew up in the 1980s, and during this last gasp of the, of the Cold War, back when Reagan, with Teller's backing, was trying to ramp things up and essentially force the Soviets to back down. And so when I became a physicist, I felt that we as a community owed the world kind of a debt of guilt as it. And to me, this is something, there's a path we shouldn't go down before. And even, even here in Australia, where it doesn't really matter that much, you know, there were jobs of physicists in defence, and I knew that was out of the question for me. And I think this is why I have a problem with Teller, because he basically believed the complete opposite. Uh, he died in 2003, before he could do any further damage. 
Um, his last big obsession, which wasn't directly related to nuclear weapons, was involving geoengineering, which is where you basically try and block out the sun to uh, counteract climate change. And this is typical. This is typical of Teller's approach to things because he didn't actually believe that climate change was a threat. However, you know, faced with the temptation of being able to control the weather using technology, he couldn't resist. There are, there are many, many stories, more stories I could tell you about Edward Teller, but I'll, I'll finish with one, which is also from his time in Los Alamos. Uh, it basically, it was reported that he had a blackboard in his office with a list of all his hypothetical nuclear weapons, and at the bottom of the list was the biggest one he could think of. And in the column-headed delivery, which is essentially how you get the bomb to its target, it simply said, Backyard. <laughs> Yeah. This is a bomb that was so big it would wipe out all life on Earth so there was no need to take it anywhere. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a joke, but this was a man who could seriously contemplate building such a thing. Uh, and it's easy for us today to forget how close we all came to being wiped out. And, but I think it's surprising to learn how much of that danger all came about from the, the crazy obsessions from one man. Thank you. That's it for this summer edition of Lost in Science with Tales from the Laboratory. Now, the Laboratory is a live event you can catch at the Spotted Mallard in Brunswick. Details and tickets can be found at thelaboratory.com. Lost in Science, though, is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook or on Twitter or you can catch podcasts of previous shows on the 3CR website or on iTunes or you can listen to us on the radio when we get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.